Did you know that Kevin Conroy, the legendary voice talent best known as the title character on Batman the Animated Series, is on Cameo? Cameo is a service that allows fans to pay for short video messages from celebrities. Did you know that Kevin Conroy charges $75 on Cameo? That's pretty reasonable. Did you know that you can also pay for ads on Cameo? Those are more expensive. Kevin Conroy charges $750 for an endorsement. I didn't know that. That's too goddamn expensive. I'm Will Nevin, not Kevin Conroy. Listen to my podcast, The Breezeway. Or give me $750 and I'll have Kevin Conroy do this ad. WNQA. Hello and welcome to WMQ&A, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. This week we're talking with Zach Thompson, one of the writers of the new Aftershock comic series, Undone by Blood, or The Shadow of a Wanted Man, uh, along with Lonnie Nadler, artist Sammy Cavella, colorist Jason Wardy, and letterer Hassan Otsman Elhow. Uh, it's part pulp western, part 1970s revenge story, and all awesome. Uh, seriously, I loved it. Uh, our own Will Nevin loved it. And uh, Matt Lazowitz and I love talking to Zach about it. Uh, we also talk about his upcoming vault comic series, No One's Rose, his just-wrapped Yondu series with Lonnie at Marvel, last year's Replacer from Aftershock, and just because this is WMQ&A and we have a brand, uh, Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, what is going on over at WMQComics.com? Well, I already mentioned that fella Will Nevin. Uh, he reviews Undone by Blood in his latest Why Will column. Uh, we've got two Pipe and Fresh X-Men of the Week columns up since we last chatted. Uh, one about the Beast by Matt, and uh, the other about the Morlocks. Um, I've really, since ever since uh, Marauders number 7, I've been obsessed with that one scene of Mask uh, teaching himself how to play golf on the, uh, on, in a retirement community in Arizona and like not wearing the robes, but wearing like like three stooges classical golf gear it's it's ridiculous and i love it um more of that anyway uh our most recent sunday editorial looks at the just announced bad idea comics uh founded by a group of former valiant comics employees uh and our most recent bonus reading gives you a brief who's who of the leads in the birds of prey movie uh it's all good stuff and it's all at wmqcomics.com but first here are me and matt and zach uh, so, Zach, what are some of the, the books that you remember reading when you first got into comics? Oh, boy. Um, the first thing I remember actually having, like, a real experience with was probably um, The Killing Joke. But that was, like, you know, when I was, like, 13 or 14, and I think one of my friends got it for me for my birthday, and I had never really read any Alan Moore before. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't really read anything like at that point, like Hush was like my favorite Batman story, which okay. is a good good book, but it doesn't really have any like heady themes to it, I guess. And mm-hmm. so that was the first time I read a comic and I was like, holy shit, they can be literature. They can they can really deal with things that are really interesting and have really interesting things to say about human nature and, and like, you know, that book in particular, you know, whatever you may feel about it, like, because I know it's a little bit problematic, but at the same time, um, at that point in my life, I was just like, holy shit, it had changed me in a big, big way. 
that's that's an interesting dichotomy just because like hush and and matt by all means correct me if i'm wrong here hush is very much sort of like the batman sampler platter it very much is jeff loeb loves to cram as many characters as he can into those books and sort of bounce from plot point to plot point while killing joke say whatever you want is basically two dovetailing narratives a past and a present and is very much point a to point b to point c yeah 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 for sure and i like you know i you know i grew up reading like age of apocalypse and all kinds of different x-men back issues i i was lucky enough to have an older brother who was really into comics growing up so he used to just give me everything that he had and let me pick through it but nothing really hit me when i was a kid right it was just sort of like i would pick up random back issues just read them mm-hmm. and put them down and be like that was fun but that was like a point where i was like oh maybe i like maybe i haven't given comics a fair shake like maybe they can do more than just sort of like tell a story about who can punch each other harder <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with a good, you know, <laughs> Superman, Shazam, or Hulk thing throwdown. <laughs> True. Um, so, yeah, uh, you've got uh, a new series starting this month uh, from Aftershock, uh, Undone by Blood, or Shadow of a Wanted Man. Uh, what is, what's the, the sort of the quick elevator pitch for this book? Quick elevator pitch is, uh, it's about a young girl, um, Ethel Grady Lane, who goes back to a town called Sweetheart, Arizona, looking for revenge. Uh, she was there one year previous, and uh, unfortunately, while she was there, her whole family was killed. And so she's looking for the man who did that to her family, and she's going to make things right. And the fun part about it is that she's also reading a Western novel, which has given her the inspiration for this revenge, and the book uh, cuts between these two narratives, so we actually see the old pulp Western novel she's reading that informs her uh, dis- decision to go get revenge. Uh, Matt and I got to read the the first two issues. Uh, it's really good, guys. Uh, just yeah. FYI. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so, joking around here because you know you've got this is this this is a title with you know this is a very long. Uh, book title you know this is this isn't one of those like image books with the one word title that you have to kind of guess what the, you know what the story's about here and and for funsies in the show notes i wrote out the entire title to fiona apple's second album <laughs> yeah i could read it out here but i won't <laughs> win, win the pawn guys <laughs> yeah. yeah meanwhile i'm researching my column for this week and had to go two or three times to double check the full title of birds of prey, which comes out on Friday, which is also an ungodly long title. (laughs) Fantabulous emancipation of Harley Quinn. (laughs) One Harley Quinn. (laughs) That's the bit I kept missing. Damn. You know, like you guys mentioned long titles. And one of the reasons that Lonnie and I decided to do that was, you know, blood Meridian um, is one of our favorite novels. Like, and that goes, blood meridian or an evening redness in the west but the the second part of it mm-hmm. is really simple is that when you have a long title people are less prone to forget all of it and so when you walk into a comic book store 
you might get like Undone by Blood, or you might get Shadow of a Wanted Man, or you might get like Shadow of Undone by Blood, but some variation <laughs> thereof will probably lead people to the right title. Whereas if you just call it like, you know, Revenge by Blood, people will be like, I want that revenge book. And then, you know, there's 10 other ones that might fit the bill. And we try to make it, you know, like wall ourselves in so you can't actually um, go into a store and get the title wrong and still, you know, end up with the wrong thing. <laughs> I will never forget. I worked at uh, Borders, may it rest in peace, for many years. And I, this was, you know, God help me, 20 years ago. And someone coming in asking for, you know, these new books by Harry Stone. And it took me forever to realize that they meant Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, wow. but th I mean, th this was, you know, pre-Harry Potter blowing up and being huge. But it was this that moment of like, do you mean Harry Potter? And the oh, yes, that's what my son asked for. <laughs> after half an hour oh man so I, I uh, I'm now thinking about all those comics retailers who like right around FOC somebody comes in and is like um, give me the one add that uh, was that undone blood shadow to my pull <laughs> yeah 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 exactly yeah <laughs> that actually came from um, Matthew Rosenberg sat Lonnie and I down when we were early in our career and you he, he said like one of the reasons he called Four Kids Walk Into a Bank, Four Kids Walk Into a Bank was because of that. Like the longer title almost ensures that people will get it right, or if they fuck up some of it, they'll at least like the retailer will know a little bit about what they're looking for. And that's really stuck with us in a big way. The key the keywords are all there. Yeah. That's just good SEO. Um, <laughs> well that's so, the other part of it too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, you've got an awesome creative team on this book. Not only are you, you know, back with, with Lonnie Nadler, uh, you're often co-writer. Uh, you've also got Sammy Cavella on art, Jason Wardy on colors and, uh, Hassan Osman Elhow on letters. Um, that is, that is a super, that is, that's the traveling Wilburys of comics. Let's, let's be honest. Uh, how did, how did you guys go about, uh, gathering your team? Um, so we, Lonnie and I signed like a three book deal with Aftershock right mm -hmm. after the dregs came out. Um, they wanted us to do a bunch of creator owned stuff at the, at there at that publisher. And, um, at that time we were like, okay, cool. Like we have a couple genres in mind of, of products we want to do. So back in 2017, we were like, we have this idea for a Western. This is kind of what it is. And, and we outlined it for them and they're like, yeah, definitely do that. And at that point we knew that we wanted to do a book with Sammy um, who was like, I think coming off beautiful canvas at black mask. Um, and then Sammy went on, he was lined up for like two years, uh, <laughs> because he's, he's so damn good that people mm -hmm. have been just poaching him constantly being like, come do this, come do this, come to this. And so we had been talking to him, trying to find the right time to do this book. Um, so he was like, he was on board since 2017 and then his schedule only cleared up at the end of last year after mm -hmm. he finished Tommy Gun Wizards. And um, after seeing him and Jason Wordy work together on Abbott, yep. uh, it, we were just like blown away by, by their teamwork there. I mean, they just inform each other so, so well. And they now that they've worked together a couple times, they have a really good shorthand with one another. So like those 
you know, the, the cowboy sections of the book look like they're watercolor paintings. And that was like born of us saying like, oh, we want this like different type of look to it. But then Sammy and Jason were able to work together to kind of hone that. And I mean, we couldn't be more pleased. They just have that like, I don't know. I, I hope they never work apart ever again because they're so damn good together. <laughs> and then with Haas, um, we've been trying to do a project with Haas for a really long time. And we actually met him in New York this past year at New York Comic Con and kind of briefly described the project to him. And uh, he was on board right away after we kind of pitched it to him loosely on the on the show floor. And then we ended up actually spending the entire like con with him like every single day, sort of getting to know him really well. And, you know, he's like he's lettering my book at Vault. He, he's lettering uh, Black Stars Above for Lonnie. Like, you know, if I could, if I had my way, he would letter everything I do from now on. <laughs> Absolutely. I, you know, and, and I'm glad to hear that uh, Jason and uh, or Sammy and Jason were a package deal because you're right. I mean, I first discovered both of them on Abbott and, you know, that that's an incredible book. So, you know, definitely well worth the wait for uh, for those two. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, you know, it, it's. You mentioned Black Stars Above. Uh, when we had Lonnie on the show back in October, uh, you know, when he was first promoting that book, you know, that and Undone by Blood, they're two great examples talking about Hassan, you know, doing that creative lettering shit that I dig, uh, you know, both in Black Stars Above, sort of the handwriting, but then in Undone by Blood, the way he weaves, like, the lines from the novel uh, into word balloons and narration boxes, you uh, yeah, it's just it's some chef's kiss, kiss shit right there. Yeah, that, we Lonnie and I actually had like a long conversation this weekend about that. Where, um, you know, there, this is no slight against other letterers, but I think mm-hmm. that when when you have someone whose job is to sort of be invisible, like a letterer, um, if they're doing their job right, there you're not even going to really notice their work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but with Haas, he brings a level of like thematic quality to to the work um he's always trying to sort of evoke uh the themes of the book within his work just as much as everyone else is and you can you you know it it is really evident in undone by blood and it's really evident in black stars and it's actually something we're working on right now for no one's rose because um i was just like i love the idea of like finding ways to evoke theme through lettering captions or or whatever and uh he's always got that extra layer of thought behind things and it's so it just enhances the quality of the book and in every way um one thing i love about especially in the first issue uh i know that the the present day of the book is set in 1971 uh i love that everybody is smoking in this comic like literally (laughs) Yeah, everybody. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, smoke, children, kids, uh, smoking is bad, obviously. Uh, and I was never a smoker, but there was, there's always something sort of comforting about seeing it because I was raised by two smokers. So like when I see all those white puffs wafting in the air, I'm like, ah, mom and dad. <laughs> and, and there's something quintessentially like Americana about that imagery too. Like we really wanted to be like, you know, this is part of like, that era where everyone just spoke constantly everywhere. And like, I can remember going to the mall when I was little and just inhaling wafts of cigarette smoke, you know, like Mm -hmm. 
when I'm going into Zellers with my mom and dad and like and I think about that now and it seems crazy right because like that just doesn't that's not reality but like if you're going to do a book about 1971 you should show people smoking constantly yeah. oh <laughs> no, definitely yeah it, it's nowadays it signals the villain I think Part of me always thinks that that starts with the X-Files, where the main descriptor of the villain was cigarette smoking man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but nowadays, it's like, you know, it's always the villain who's smoking. But I, you know, I saw Ghostbusters on the big screen recently, and it was like, oh, wow, they are constantly smoking. And they're the good guys. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it was cool. There was a point in time where it was really cool for everyone to be smoking. And, like, you know, I, I think that, like, we're really trying to like with Ethel's character. Um, she's as much trying to like evoke that, right? Like she's posing as that sort of like hardened um, cowboy type. And, you know, both her and Saul like roll their own cigarettes in, in the book. And we made a point of like, you know, you don't really know if she was a smoker before the story started or she got there and she buys a pack of tobacco. And that's the first time she's ever smoked a, a cigarette. And, you know, that's just her committing to the role. And you, you'll never find out. But the whole point is that it's just like everything is supposed to evoke that like Americana, which is hilarious because it's written by two Canadians and drawn by a Finnish man. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, Matt, I, to your point, I don't even I don't even think you see the villains smoke anymore. You know, and I was just, I was reminded of, and I, I, I swear, I forget where I hear, I heard this, but it was probably our friends, Jeff and Rick. Uh, June Brigman apparently told a story that when she did that power pack one shot last year, you know, Wolverine was in it and she had to redraw some of the Wolverine stuff because editorial told her Wolverine can't smoke in comics anymore. Yeah, we, we actually had that debate with Yondu because we wanted Yondu to smoke um, and just in a certain scene and they're like, no, it, it can happen. Um, and I, like, I get it to a certain degree, but I'm also just like, you know, in my opinion, I think that if it's a character thing, uh, you know, people can understand there's people in life who still smoke and like, you know, just because you see it in your media, you're not going to be like Wolverine smoking cigars. I got to go get me one, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. But I mean, I do remember after uh, X Factor 70, there was that wave of people eating cigars. <laughs> it was an epidemic. Yes. Uh, worse <laughs> than vaping. <laughs> so the, the revenge narrative of you know, people hunting and killing those who wronged, their, wronged or killed their family is something that you see a lot in Westerns and a lot in the 70s where the story set you know death wish creation of the punisher your you know exploitation last house on the left films um but most of those stories are a father or a male figure taking revenge on those who wronged their daughter wife etc um with the exception of i spit on your grave um but what, this book is a female protagonist seeking that revenge. Was that a conscious, really conscious choice? What made you go for a female protagonist in that usually male-dominated genre? 
Well, I yeah, that's that's a hundred percent it. I mean, it was it was because the genre was so male dominated, and it and it ruminates on all these themes of of manliness and you know revenge is quintessentially part of being a man. You know, you 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 right those wrongs with your with your two fists or your gun or whatever. And and Lonnie and I were talking about that, and we we're like, okay, we we love genre. We love to play with. Um, you know, what comes with genre? What are the preconceptions that people have about a certain lens? And with revenge in particular, you don't often see revenge narratives starring women, especially young women. And we wanted to go like, okay, who would be the best person to explore this and also allow us to sort of make a commentary on the revenge genre as it is? And like, you know, there's a reason that that scene in issue one where she goes into the bar and she's like, you know, casing the place and then she walks up and she and I'm going to spoil part of issue one, but <laughs> fuck it. Um, she walks up and she's, you know, she's looking for a fight and it ends terribly for her um, in a way that, you know, in most revenge films, if that's Charles Brosnan, he goes up. He has a very similar interaction with those people. But when he throws that first punch he beats the living Christ out of everyone in there. And, you know, you guys have read issue one, you know that that's not the way it goes for her. Mm -hmm. And um, that's one of the reasons that we included Saul's story in the book, because those two things are saying very different things about revenge and the mythologization of violence in American culture. And um, we wanted to sort of capture a certain naivete going into this with a character who thinks they understand what this all means, but as they get deeper and deeper into it, um, they realize they're way in over their head. And yeah. It's interesting. You, it feels like you're sort of right on the, the crest of this wave of, an, of, you know, women seeking revenge in media. And I mean, I, that might be a reaction or part of Me Too, or things like that, but uh, this uh, Black Christmas, the new Black Christmas that came out a couple months ago, and uh, if you've seen the trailer for Promising Young Woman, it oh, also yeah. has this it, this vibe, and I'm you know not saying anyone's copy, I think there's something in the culture right now that is moving in that direction. For sure, and I think another part of it is just like, Lonnie and I don't want to, like, we haven't really had uh, normal protagonists in any of our work, and, and we're not really interested in, in telling stories about, you know, 30 to 40-something white dudes who have a chip on their shoulder. Like, you know, we try really hard to go, okay, this is the story we want to tell, these are the themes we want to explore, and how do we put the best lens on that possible and like, you know, from the moment we came up with Ethel's name, she sort of just came out from that, right? Like, and it was so much fun to build that character and go, okay, cool. Like this, because of who she is, this is going to change the way that we tell the story. And it's actually going to make it more interesting because at the end of the day, like you haven't seen a Western in the 70s starring like a, you know, 18 year old girl who's the one with the gun, right? Like. I, I want to see that movie, but it hasn't been made yet. <laughs> kind of getting into, uh, there's one kind of silly question I had in reading uh, the book. Uh, you know, obviously 
there's a lot of uh, allusions to you know American westerns you've got you know a boy named Marion uh, you know there's John Wayne's real name you know all kinds of things like that um, I was curious though uh, and this might this might be an overreach on my part the villain uh, in the the novel uh, is, is a fellow named Jed McKay and I was like, oh, you know, it's spelled differently, but I do wonder if that was a tip of the hat to the guy who uh, writes Black Cat and also is Canadian. Well, the funny story about Jed McKay, he literally grew up on the same uh, island that I was born on, and we're like the only two comic book writers from Prince Edward Island, Canada. Oh, but wow. <laughs> um, we had not, like, like I said, we wrote this, like, Ani and I wrote this book in early 2019 and at that point i had not met jed um which is hilarious because now i'm thinking about this and i'm like oh shit he's definitely going to to see this <laughs> at some point and and realize that we've made him the villain but um it was not done on purpose is the the short answer <laughs> and actually i'm going to tell lonnie this and he's gonna laugh because we literally have never had this conversation and it's hysterical that we didn't think about that <laughs> uh, so back when we interviewed Lonnie um, and he was in Black Stars Above I asked him about his horror influences so here we're talking westerns so I'm curious uh, what are your western influences I mean you mentioned Blood Meridian and there's definitely a Cormac McCarthy vibe but I mean were you did you watch John Wayne as a kid or still now I mean the, the Marion thing jumped out at me uh, spaghetti westerns, uh, yeah. some of the more modern deconstructionist stuff too. I mean, you're a, a character who's pops up at the end of issue two's last name is Zane, and that made me immediately think of Zane Gray. Yeah, I mean, we so we've we've layered a lot of these references to other famous figures in westerns on purpose to sort of like you know one to celebrate our influences, but also just to you know to have fun with people who will pick up on that stuff. Um, but beyond that, like my favorite movie of all time, I think is once upon a time in the West. Um, I just think it's an absolute masterpiece and like, you know, it's long and it, and it is melodramatic in places, but man, the way that that movie is shot, I saw it when I was like 16 and it's sort of just, I had told everyone all the time that I didn't like Westerns. Um, and then I saw that movie and it, it blew me away. And like, I don't know why I had the attention span to watch a three hour epic at that point in my life, but it really rocked me to a point where like, that was how I kind of found the spaghetti Westerns. And then from there went into like John Wayne's filmography. We watched a lot of John Wayne, um, getting ready for this book because we really wanted, um, Saul, the character in Shadow of a Wanted Man, to be more John Wayne than Clint Eastwood, simply because Clint Eastwood is the sort of like quintessential gunslinger that everyone thinks of. And um, John Wayne is more, I don't know, to me, he just feels more interesting at this point. You know, like we we had this big debate early on in the book of, of well, do you do like the Unforgiven? where you have this like retired gunslinger coming out of retirement um, to like make things right. Or do you do like a younger man who was a piece of shit gunslinger for a little while and then sort of settled down and left it all behind. And so you're kind of picking him up somewhere in the middle of his life story. 
And because the unforgiven thing has been done so many times, we were like, okay, well, let's try something a little bit different. Let's go with a John Wayne direction. Let's try and make him um, more of a complicated figure than just, you know, this grizzled old bastard who has secrets, um, which is a long way of saying, um, you know, yes, John Wayne was an influence. Um, and we're both Lonnie and I are huge fans of Cormac McCarthy. Um, I think Blood Meridian might be one of my favorite novels of all time. Uh, I read it at a time where I was like really waffling on whether or not I wanted to be a writer. And, uh, I finished that book and it was like, it was a, like a lightning bolt into my brain where I was like, holy shit, I need to write. Like this is, if, if you can do something like this with a novel, then what the fuck am I doing? I should quit everything else and start writing immediately. Um, and so, you know, there, there's something about how much of a lasting impact Westerns have had on film and literature. And um, Lonnie and I really like to sample from a, a little bit of everything. So, you know, there's there's a sequence in issue two that is like, on Sergio Leone like we we put the camera on the ground and there's you know there's a huge two-page spread that's sort of influenced by a moment in Once Upon a Time in the West and uh, you know that was only supposed to be when we originally talked about it it was going to be like five panels and I think it, it's somewhere in the realm of 21 when it's all done <laughs> um, and that's just from building with Sammy, who's also a crazy person and loves all this stuff. And so a lot of the time, it's just us going back and forth being like, okay, this is what we were thinking. Like, do you know this part from this movie? And he's like, yeah, oh my God, what if we did this and this? And then we just sort of like start building this pastiche of all these different references that get us to a place where we're doing something completely different. And so we're standing on the shoulders of giants, but trying to do our own thing at the same time. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I, I, I was thinking, uh, you know, kind of talked about the the pull between, you know, Wayne and and Eastwood, and I, I think, I think culturally, it, it it's just interesting because I think, you know, it's it's that thing of of Wayne died the hero and Eastwood lived long enough to become the villain. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, like, and then, you know, Wayne is also coming back around to villain status later on. But, like, only because, you know, I, I don't know. I think when you examine people who lived in the past through the lens of the, the present, they will pretty much always appear to be problematic. I'm not yeah. saying that he isn't problematic. I'm just saying that, like, it's really easy to look back and be like, oh, shit, he was super racist. It's like, yeah, of course he was. <laughs> that, uh, the, the I think it's uh, Hub and Corey of Ten of the Defense who comment, you know, back in the past when everyone was terrible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we're all learning, right? And like the, you know, you read some of the stuff he said, and you're like, holy shit, that's awful. And like, I don't, I'm, you know, I don't have any love for John Wayne the man, but mm -hmm. I, I do enjoy a lot of the cinema that he he made. Certainly. Yep. I'm, I'm just curious, as we, we talked movies and books there, did, do you have any particular fondness or memories of Western comics? I mean, there aren't a ton of them, and I don't think they're not in the modern 
parlance anyway. I mean, back in the the day of the pre-Silver Age, there were scads of them. But, I mean, there aren't... It's not one of the genres that has popped back up in the same way that crime and horror comics have in the past decade or so. Yeah, we actually, like, we went back and read Blueberry, which is, you know, an unbelievable book. Um, some of the uh, Jonah Hex stuff that was written by... Um, Oh man, his name is blanking. The, Joe Lansdale. Yes, yeah, that stuff is unbelievable. Really, really enjoyed revisiting that, and just looking at the old sort of like, you know, forgotten Western comics. I guess I, there was a French one that I I cannot remember the name of right now. Um, that we used to we found at like a thrift store while we were working on the book and leafed through that, and it was mostly just about like looking at the the look and feel of those older books and trying to get Saul's story somewhere within that. Um, obviously it's got like a lot more modern art and that kind of thing, but like, you know, even down to the sound effects of the guns, like the, the revolvers in Saul's story just make the sound effect paw and there's no sound effects in Ethel's story. Um, just, we wanted to make clear delineations between sort of like what is pulp and what is reality and so we tried to make the sound effects really like elevated and silly in the Western sections because like if you look at those old Western comics, they are filled with a lot of that crazy onomatopoeia and like, you know, really fun, crazy colors and stuff. But I other than the Joe Lansdale stuff and the and Blueberry, nothing that I've read has really stuck with me. And I think that was a part of the reason that we wanted to make a Western comic was because not a whole lot of people make Westerns that play it relatively straight. There's always some mm. sort of like twist on it. Like, Oh, it's a sci-fi Western or it's a, a Western on Mars or it's a Western in the future or, or whatever. And we were like, okay, well let's make a Western in the past and let's put it, you know, during the era of revenge. And, you know, that solves a lot of narrative problems too, where it's like, you know, if you're going to do this in 2020, um, and she's going back to find the people who killed her family. Well, you've got DNA evidence and you've got cell phones and you've got all this other shit that just makes the story so much more complicated. And so it was a nice way for us to kind of wall ourselves in and make really interesting like rules about how our world was going to work. And then also um, it allowed us to hone in on the themes that we were sort of tackling at the same time. Um, but this is this is not your uh, only iron in the fire currently. Uh, you mentioned earlier you've got No One's Rose uh, coming out next month from Vault with uh, Emily Horn and uh, Alberto Albuquerque. Uh, this one is takes on a whole, you know, this is more of like a, it's got a real environmental bent to it, uh, correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that book comes out at the end of March and it is sort of, uh, Emily and I met for in 2017 and when we met we were both sort of like talking a lot about climate change and sort of our fears about how uh we both live in vancouver and you know part of vancouver is going to be underwater by 2100 <laughs> in a really big way particularly like the street i live on every time i look at climate maps it's going to be underwater mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so we talked a lot about well, how do you do fiction that's more imaginative about what this looks like? How do we tackle this? How do we 
how do we be more hopeful about the future? Because uh, a lot of future narratives have been like kind of soaked in neon and rain and kind of it living in the shadow of Blade Runner mm-hmm. or, or Neuromancer. And um, I reached out to the guys at Vault and I was like, hey, I want to do a solar punk book. And they were like, I don't know what that is. Let's get on the phone. <laughs> and so I basically was like, I want to do a book that's set in a world where everything is renewable energy. Everything is green. We live in harmony with the environment. And, you know, we're going to do an adventure story within this world. But the the whole crux of it is that, you know, we're not stomping on the environment. Everywhere we look, we figured it out. And we found a solution. And the whole of the book is about the fact that there is a solution, but it's a very contained solution. It is that the world has been ravaged by climate change, but there is one last city of hope. It's called the Green Zone, and it's like a domed city that exists in northern Canada on the precipice of like the wilderness. And it's about the people who are literally trying to rebuild, and particularly a brother and sister we're sort of on opposite ends of the environmentalism argument and how they come to blows um, over what to do to safeguard like humanity's future. And, you know, we're pitching it, you know, as like a Ursula Le Guin sort of adventure story, but for um, young adult audiences, particularly, because I feel like they are the people who are going to be most affected by climate change And they're the people who want to see these types of stories. And so we're trying very hard to create a world that you haven't seen before Um, in a real way. You know, we're imagining a lot of uh, a lot of speculative science. We're trying to make it real in this book. We're Mm -hmm. trying to show how you can take, you know, chloroplast from algae and inject it into trees and then they can hyper oxygenate. And sort of create breathable atmospheres, um, little things like that. And then also, I'm taking my love for body horror and sort of injecting it into bioorganic technology. And so the mixture mm. of like plants and bones and weird shit like that integrating with technology. And I don't think anyone's really seen that shit yet. And I'm very excited to sort of unleash it on the world in March. <laughs> that's, that's awesome uh what was the you know did you guys have like a long research phase for for this book yeah i mean um we we were actually writing it as a novel in 2017 oh, wow. uh, and so we were working on it as a novel up until basically christmas 2018 and then that's when vault picked it up and so right now we have like a 60 five page Bible. That's sort of like, here's all the research we have. Here's all the different groups who live in this world. Here's how they get by. And like, you know, 90% of that shit, it's not going to be in the book, but mm-hmm. it allows us to sort of like build out the world. And the nice thing is that if the book is well received, we have the potential to do lots of stories in this world because we have so much built out. Um, but I, I joke with people all the time now. Cause I'm like, I think I don't want to build worlds anymore. (laughs) After this and after age of X-Men, I'm just kind of like, Oh boy. Like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to go through all the, the hard work of like, you know, designing rules and designing how, how this stuff works and, 
because it's so much bigger than a, a regular book. Like you, mm-hmm. you know, when you're doing Undone by Blood, it's 1971 America. So you know, the rules are set for you pretty clearly. When you're doing a book that's set multiple centuries in the future, um, you have to think of everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, that can be, it's fun and it's freeing in its own way because you make up all the rules and you sort of get to really look at science and, and speculate about where things are going to go. But at the same time, it's such a massive amount of work that is fun and fulfilling, but you know, they don't pay you to do that work. So you end up uh, toiling well into the night um, to build your very sturdy world. And then the thing that's crazy about it is if you do a good job, no one will notice that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, how did you, uh, like the experience of writing with, uh, you know, with Emily, with working with a, a different partner from, uh, from Lonnie? It's different. Um, you know, Lonnie and I now, uh, I mean, we have like a hive mind in a real way. <laughs> and that like, if we, if we encounter a story problem, what often happens is like, we'll break and, um, you know, we'll both go about our lives. And at some point, will message one another and I'll be like, I was thinking this. And he's like, I was literally about to text you the exact same thing. And so (laughs) that's a point where like, we really do think about these things very similarly. Um, And, you know, we haven't, we don't really encounter any sort of problems working together anymore because we've, we've just done this for so long. And like, we went to film school together. So we've known each other for, you know, going on eight years now and been writing together seven of those years. Um, so it's different to write with someone new because it sort of brings a new level of of influence and interaction and sort of like Emily's got uh, a background in like comparative literature and sort of is considering a lot of different elements that I don't typically consider, which is really interesting. And also just like writing with a woman is is really fascinating just because she considers different perspectives from my own. And that was really important to me with this book in the first place because it has a, a female lead and a, a male lead that, you know, I, I had someone on project with me that could speak to that experience in a really big way. And Emily has been sort of the one who's been championing a lot of the speculative science fiction and, and really looking into green technologies and stuff because that's sort of where um, her passion lies. And so it's been really interesting sort of like, you know, I'm bringing um, my, my taste for like body horror and crazy sort of like science fiction premises. And she's bringing this really grounded sort of research-based look at how this stuff is going to work. And together we're building something different. And it's cool because it's also very, very different than a book that I could write with Lonnie. And so I think people are going to be very intrigued by it because it is so different. But um, in that way, it's really been amazing because it's stretched some muscles for me that, um, I didn't know I had, I guess. That's awesome. Um, although I, 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 I will be honest now, I'm kind of envisioning you and Lonnie as like the Stepford Cuckoos a little bit. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, we, Lonnie and I will, we have people now going like, wait, you guys are both working on solo books. Are you guys going to do books together? And I'm like, oh yeah, like we're, we're going to continue working together forever. I don't think we can, we can escape that. Um, (laughs) just because it's like, you know, our friendship is founded off of, of working together. And like, we are already, 
I think next week we're beginning formal like development on our next creator own book, um, which we're doing with Peter Kowalski from Come Into Me. Yes, I, I was actually I was excited to hear about that. Um, obviously, very early stages. So all I want you to say about that right now is whatever amusing lie you'd like to tell us. <laughs> well, I can I can tell you like. I, it, I'll just say this. It's a crazy book about the world of art. And that's, it's a horror book. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's going to be weird as shit. And like, <laughs> I don't know why the publisher agreed to do it, but they did. And um, it's something that we built from the ground up with Peter. After working with him on Come Into Me, we realized that he's also just a really um, incredible storyteller. And so like, we actually sat down with him and we were like, we want to do another book with you, but we don't want to, we don't want to write this by ourselves. We actually want you involved in the development process. So he came to us with a couple ideas that he had and then we worked together. And so this book is actually sort of based on a story that the three of us put together. Um, we're going to go and script it now, but Peter was instrumental in sort of coming up with the plot. Very cool. Uh, so you mentioned Yondu. That wraps, uh, I think, the week that we're recording this, uh, you know, the previous week by the time it releases. But uh, how did you enjoy playing in the uh, the, the cosmic uh, part of, of Marveldom? Oh, it was amazing. Um, so Yondu is a book that we were doing with one of our old X-Men editors, Darren Shan, who um, he was in the X office up until everything happened with Hickman. And then based on the way that that went down, they sort of moved him over to um, the Cosmic Office because Jordan White was originally leading up the Cosmic books. And so mm -hmm. he had sort of like hand some stuff off. So anyway, um, we actually ended up pitching um, a Guardians 3000 book. And they were like, there's no appetite for that. But it's why do you like Guardians 3000? And we were like, well, to be perfectly honest with you, we just think Yondu, the original Yondu is crazy and like, just a really cool character. And then we were just like, we got an email that said, do you have time to hop on the phone? And that led to us uh, pitching this crazy, like double Yondu title. And I think for Lonnie and I, we, we've had a blast just because it's so unlike anything else we've done. It's legitimately crazy. And then like when we, we pitched it, we pitched it as Hitman, um, like in the Marvel universe. And then they're like, funny you pitched it that way what do you think about john mccray drawing it and we literally like shit ourselves because <laughs> <laughs> it couldn't have been better like it, honestly and like working with john has been an absolute like first of all we've learned so much from him because he's just been part of the industry for so long and it's so fascinating to be working on a book with a guy that I grew up reading. Like I, I still mm -hmm. don't really fully understand that. And he teases Lonnie and I about it all the time that, you know, we were like in diapers when he was drawing <laughs> comics. Um, but it, he's been really awesome. And he's, you know, we have a really great shorthand with him now. And so that book has been a lot of fun just to build crazy ideas with him and working with Mike Spicer on colors too. Like those guys are a dream team together. Honestly, couldn't have asked for a better, better team. I just want to do more crazy, big cosmic shit. That's all I want. <laughs> That's awesome. 
you know, it, it, it's funny you mentioned uh, earlier talking about you know they you know they told you Yondu can't smoke, and all I keep thinking about is is you know obviously you're playing with sort of the the, the present day version of Yondu is built off the MCU version, and I'm like. Okay, but he killed a hundred people, and people still cried when he died. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd be fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, and there's little things like we try. Like that book is filled with. Um, I can't get into details because sure. it will will destroy me. But uh, <laughs> it is filled with things that we tried over and over again to hide in the book. And to get away with things, and they they got us every time. <laughs> <laughs> but there's so many things that we thought we were being really really smart about, and you know because Marvel's sensitive to that sort of thing, like uh-huh. they have like eight or nine people read your book before it goes to the printer, and um, almost almost everything was caught. There's there's a there's one or two things in the last issue that um, Lonnie and I are really happy that got in there. <laughs> Oh man, is it? it uh, we can talk about it later. But I'm just I'm thinking about that issue of New X Men where the word sex just keeps appearing over and over again. <laughs> and I'm thinking about the uh, issue of the Demon by Garth Ennis with John McCrae art, where he names the Demon Bator, and all oh, of no. hell starts. Oh yeah, all hell, master. Eh. The the editors called <laughs> it Siege to Lord, but. The, the, it got pretty far along before it got <laughs> Yeah, that's that's half the fun. You gotta hide little things in there. You gotta just make sure they're on their toes. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was curious. Uh, you know, um, last year you had the, the graphic novel replacer uh, at AfterShock. Um, you know, you've talked in the past about it being kind of a personal story. Um, you know, it's 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 a horror book, but it's also about a, a kid whose father has a debilitating stroke and the kid just has a hard time, you know, sort of adjusting to his reality. I, w- I was curious, you know, in, in, after the book came out, did you end up, you know, what was sort of the reaction like? Did you have a lot of people reaching out to you with kind of their own personal stories about, you know, loved ones having strokes when they were young or things like that? Yeah, it was actually uh kind of like mind-blowing because like uh, i don't know like my dad did have a stroke when i was seven um and is uh mentally and physically disabled now and and will be you know until the day he passes away um and sort of like you know he's a lovely man he he has like the vocabulary of maybe like an eight-year-old and and sort of is a little simpler but you know he i still have a lovely time with him every time i see him um but for a really long time, I had a lot of really strange and conflicting feelings about him and who he was because I was so young when that happened. I couldn't remember who he was beforehand. And you have this thing that happens where um, people don't really want to talk about who the person was before that happened. And so it just sort of creates this idea of, you know, uh, someone has replaced this person in your life. Uh, so I was fully prepared for no one to, to have sort of an emotional reaction to it. And I was fine with that because I was like, well, this, this is just for, if one person messages me and says like, Hey, this really meant a lot to me for X, Y, and Z reasons. That's cool. And I actually got quite a few different people from all over the world 
and still to this day uh, people reach out and say like hey you know my my dad was an alcoholic or my mother was in a car accident and her legs broke when I was eight and you know I didn't understand that and anyway so it's helping people connect with that pain and that was um, really important to me because I think that people don't talk about disability in a way that is like frank and honest and I think a lot of times when you have someone in your life who something like that happens to um, you don't want to be selfish about it you don't want to be you don't want to be seen as someone who's upset about this because of how it affects them but the unfortunate reality is that it does affect you and it does change your life and it does sort of um, have this crazy ripple effect and oftentimes you know like my dad's quality of life is amazing like he he really he's a really happy wonderful man and you know arguably you know my brothers and I had a harder time with his stroke than he did because he had the best care in the world and he learned how to walk again and he learned how to talk again and he you know I I would say he's a better man today than he was before he had a stroke but when you're a kid and you don't understand and you're angry and you're, you know, you're pissed off that that happened to you, you go to school and you'll start fights or whatever. And mm-hmm. it sort of is just this huge burden that you carry around with you. And to see that other people connected with that was really cool because it, it one made me feel less alone and two people are able to connect with it and share it with people in their lives and sort of get that release from it. And that was, really amazing because like i don't know that's what you hope for whenever you you're a writer you create art you hope that you can sort of help people have an emotional connection to whatever you're putting out there and so like i still sort of like i'm blown away every time people reach out but it's it's becoming more and more common and it actually helped uh, a really important conversation kind of happen in my family where a lot of people weren't talking about the the pain that they felt and I have two brothers, and one older and one younger. And um, it's sort of when they they read it or heard about it, they didn't really say anything. They didn't really like. I could tell that you know it was sort of a sore subject that I was writing about it. But I told everyone I was like, "This is happening." Like, <laughs> you know, just so you're aware. And everyone was like, "Okay." And then came out, and about a month passed, and I got a message from my older brother, and he was just like. I cannot tell you how much of a release I got from from reading that. Like it, it made it made me feel like we had a conversation that we've never had. And then my mom said the same thing, and my younger brother said the same thing. And then my father's like relatives came into the the picture and sort of, you know, they were like, we read it and we had no idea you felt that way. It was just really cool. It was honestly awesome. I, I I'm so happy that Aftershock got behind that book because. I pitched to them thinking it was the craziest thing I had ever given anyone. And they're like, let's do it. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, no, definitely, uh, you know, in terms of probably, yeah, no, definitely one of my favorite things that I read last year. So I'm I'm glad to hear that it had, uh, you know, a positive effect, you know, just just sort of on on you having written it. Thanks. Replacer... uh, other than you know, I mean, there's a, a demonic aspect to. There's also, uh, it's it's very much in the the body horror genre 
which is something you've played with uh, in Coming to Me and Cable and the Apocalypse backups from X-Men Black. Um, is there... What is it about body horror that speaks to you as the subgenre of horror? So there's, there, it's a like a threefold answer, I guess, in that like um, one, like beyond anything, I just thought it was super fucking cool whenever I was younger, and I was just like, I was like, fuck, like I love David Cronenberg, and and no one does this shit. Like I need to need to do it. But the other side of it was like thematically what body horror represents and looking at that resonated with me for a number of reasons but i really love the idea of like taking horror and reflecting it inward um and and making a person's body the source of of horror where in which they lose control or there's this like creeping dread inside your body in the form of an infection or or whatever it may be but the idea that like that's something you can't run from. Um, I, I I love horror and all of its subgenres, but there's something to me that you could infinitely explore with body horror. Whereas, like you know, a slasher, as far as I'm concerned, the best slashers have already been made. And why why try to make a new one? As far as I, you know, just because you know, I feel like you've got Halloween and then everything after Halloween and then you've got scream and then it's like, let's just put the genre to bed. (laughs) Um, and then later on in life, my, uh, the realization I made was like, Oh, you know, my dad had this horrible thing happen to him where he was locked in his body. And I don't know if I was aware of it at the time, but you know, helping, my dad into a wheelchair or putting his leg in a leg brace when I was like nine years old definitely stuck with me in a way that I used to always think about like, Oh, like he can't move that. Like how could he not move his leg or how can he not move his arm or whatever? And I used to think about that all the time when I was a kid. And now I go back and I'm like, Oh yeah, that was probably where some of this body horror shit came from (laughs) early on was just seeing someone sort of lose control over something that like we're ostensibly supposed to have control over a body forever. And I think when you're young and when your brain is developing, you, if you have that moment where you go like, Oh, this is kind of horrifying. And you start to imagine sort of what it would be like to lose control. It was pretty easy for me later on in life to go back and look at that. But I didn't, when I first made the decision to make body horror stuff, it was simply uh, because one, I liked it, and two, I felt like as a Canadian, I needed to make a love letter to David Cronenberg. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny that you mentioned the the slasher genre sort of being that the best is already passed. Um, it made me that I was almost gonna not, but I now need to ask you this. Oh um, yes, yes. <laughs> but no, no, this is not what you're thinking. Oh um, damn. <laughs> no, this is um. The uh, replacer is set in 1995, and there's a bit at the beginning with um, a cordless phone, the advent of the cordless phone. But I've always thought that slasher movies that are so much about that chase have been completely killed by the advent of the cell phone. Yeah, absolutely. Because you need now to have an excuse as to why these kids don't just call someone. 
Yeah, and I, I I also feel like you can't. There's like I've racked my brain for hours, days, months, going like, how do you modernize a slasher? How do you do for like for teens and stuff, like teens who live in the world of TikTok or Instagram or whatever? What Scream did for like portable phones or or for the era of kids who grew up in the '90s, and I just can't figure out how to make that scary you know like it's just not scary if you've got your phone (laughs) it's not scary if you can call someone and like i hate i hate seeing a movie where it's like oh all of our signals gone for some reason and it's always like like for some reason and if it's and if it is introduced into the plot it feels contrived i don't know i just there's something about it to me where it feels like it it's better just to stay in the past and now I will ask the question that Dan was excited to hear me. <laughs> Thank um, you, because if you weren't going to do it, I was. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I am. I just, I needed to, to get that out because that's something I've been thinking about. Um, what are your feelings about Halloween 3, Season of the Witch? This is something that has come up repeatedly, and so now, whenever I <laughs> the, the uh, opportunity, I have to ask about Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Now we're just um, forcing it in. It's not even organic anymore. <laughs> So I, I, I love that movie because it's crazy um, and it's, it's really fun. It's really fun in particular to show it to people who've never seen it before because they, they're just sort of like, oh, I'm aware of Halloween. This will be fun. And then you're like, you have no fucking clue what you're about to, to enter into. Um, but like, I, I don't know. I haven't seen it in a bit. I am a real... I love bad horror. Like it's actually probably my favorite thing in in the world. I, I love watching bad horror movies with friends in particular. And this last Halloween, I ended up watching all of the other Halloween sequels except for Halloween three. I don't know why we left it out, but we did, and I regret that big time because you know the other ones just suck. They're not even like fun bad. They're just bad bad. Especially Halloween six. It's the one with out. young Paul Rudd. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is like the only reason to watch it. And then you're like, oh, but he like this movie actually makes no sense whatsoever, and is such a incoherent disaster that even young Paul Rudd doesn't really do a whole lot. It's <laughs> <laughs> too funny. Um, all right, so we'll kind of move on to uh, the lightning round now. Uh, we did get one listener question going into this from. Uh, friend of the show, Patreon subscriber, Robert Secundus. Uh, could you pair Undone by Blood uh, and uh, No One's Rose each with uh, one book, one movie, and one drink? Okay. Um, no One's Rose I'll do first. Uh, for a drink, <laughs> the most boring answer humanly possible, I'll pair it with water. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, and... Uh, for a book, I would pair it with Ursula Le Guin's The Word for the World is Forest. Um, and for a movie, uh, all, simply because, well, watching this is what actually, <laughs> this is embarrassing, and Emily will murder me when she finds out that I said this, um, but we were watching Waterworld, ironically, <laughs> and then we were like, we need to write environmental fiction. <laughs> so that would be those pairings. Um, Gotta or, be honest, I thought you were going to say Biodome. <laughs> uh, well, you know what? Like we we jokingly like 
we were talking the other night and I was like, oh, like, should we tell people we pitched it as Waterworld meets Biodome? And she was like, fuck you. I want people to take this book seriously. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that's fair. That's very fair. Um, Waterworld, for what it's worth, like, it should be way better than it actually is because there's a lot of good ideas in it. It's just such a fucking train wreck of a movie and I can't help but love it because of that. But it's, you watch it and you're like oh this is fun and then you check the runtime and you're like oh there's still two hours left i don't think i can do this <laughs> um undone by blood let me see i would pair it uh what would i pair it with hmm. i'm gonna say blood meridian simply because it's my favorite cormac mccarthy book um and i think it sort of has a lot to say about some of the themes that he's been playing with and particularly because it influenced the title of the book um for a film oh i got a good one uh wild at heart david lynch movie um Mm -hmm. there's a character you have not met yet in undone by blood who is heavily influenced by bobby peru from wild at heart um, which is Willem Dafoe's batshit character. Um, and that is actually, we created that character and then we wrote the whole book around it. <laughs> um, oh, boy. Yeah, so that was a, a conscious decision. And also a little bit of Reggie Ledoux in that character from True Detective Season 1, um, which Lonnie and I are both obsessed with and can't stop going back to to reference. And then for a drink, um, let's just go with straight old whiskey, because that just feels like, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna read or write a western, you should probably just be drinking whiskey. Makes all yeah, makes absolute sense. Uh, <laughs> what is your? Uh, we're coming up on con season now. What is your uh, show schedule like so far this year? Um, I'm pretty. Because I'm Canadian and because America is terrifying to me. <laughs> fair. Absolutely I'm fair. sorry. Mm-hmm. No, um, no. <laughs> it, you know, it's interesting because I've been going to cons now for about eight years. And there's like a noticeable shift at the border. I mean, which is probably obvious to you guys. But like, it's just crazy as a Canadian to sort of be like scrutinized at the border when you're like a comic book writer and you're like, mm-hmm. I'm bringing comics with me. Like I'm not up to anything bad, but anyway, um, Emerald city for sure. Um, no one's rose is actually going to be launching early at Emerald city this year. Um, awesome. and then New York comic con for sure. And maybe San Diego, but it's always a, up in the air a little bit just because of, you know, finding a hotel and getting into like, do I really want to wade into that thick mess of people and just be in the sweaty maw of comic culture? <laughs> As opposed to that quieter, more relaxed New York. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I, for whatever reason, I, I find New York like calming. Um, and it might just be because like, you can see the sky above you in the Javits Center at certain points and you're like, okay, at least I can see outside. You know, like, when you're at San Diego, you're just sort of like, there's nothing but people in every direction and I can smell all of them right now <laughs> this moment. <laughs> so we'll see. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, what are you reading right now? 
Um, oh shit! I something is killing the children. I think is just unbelievable. Um, let me look at my most recent reading list. Uh, Olympia from mm. Image, which I mm-hmm. really enjoyed. Kurt uh, Pierce is a buddy of mine, but I find that book just to be so incredible because it's so unlike the rest of his work, and I, I love that. I asked him about it because his work is typically a lot more like jarring and experimental and subversive. And he was like, well, I thought after a couple of years of doing that kind of stuff, the most subversive thing I could do was a superhero book. And I was like, right on. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, Justice League Dark, I've been really enjoying. Um, all of the X-Men stuff, I'm still a devout um, fan with all the Hickman stuff I just think is unbelievable. Um, Black Stars Above, can't go wrong. Um, far sector um i've been loving just absolutely devouring so incredible it who like i knew nk jemison was an incredible writer but there sometimes i'm suspect about whether or not a novelist can make the jump to comics and i read that first issue and i was like holy shit she's gonna put us all out of work (laughs) it's just gonna happen so fast um Hawkeye Freefall, thought was fantastic. Um, turns out Matt Rosenberg is a fantastic Hawkeye writer. Um, Protector from Image that just came out last week I really enjoyed. And um, I read uh, Tartarus, which comes out on the same day as Undone by Blood. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Johnny Christmas and Jack T. Cole's new Image book. And that is amazing. Very, very like dense sci-fi in the spirit of like Moebius which can't go wrong very cool yeah alright and then completely random question based on something I saw on Twitter the other day favorite 16-bit RPG oh man um uh, damn it it's more tough than you'd think um my first thought was Chrono Trigger, but then I Ooh. immediately was like, oh, but Final Fantasy VI, like, what do I do? Th- um, those are both the correct answer. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I can't, like, I was, like, thinking the other day that if you could go to my Twitter uh, profile and it played music, it would just play the, like, overworld theme from Chrono Trigger. Like, that would be Ooh. my vibe. That's what I want people to, like, feel whenever that's, they're... That's a good vibe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I listen to that stuff so much. It's like the music I write to constantly is just 16-bit music. That I, I, At work, when I need to tune out, that's what I do. I go on YouTube and I just like hit up. It's usually Chrono Trigger, Final Fantasy VI, and then there's one that's like every Mega Man level theme ever. Those are the That's like the heavy rotation. Hell yeah. I got made fun of in grade 11 because uh, a guy took my iPod mini away from me and he, he asked me what I was listening to, and it was just all the soundtracks to Mega Man 1 through 6. And he uh, he threw my iPod mini on the ground, and he was like, it's just bleeps and bloops, man. Get the fuck out of here. And I was like, I like it. It's good stuff. <laughs> also, isn't that just what EDM is? Bleeps and bloops? <laughs> I, mean... I think so. I don't know. I'm getting old now. When you're in your uh... 30s, you're... what is music anymore? I just like the stuff I like. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> all right, Zach. This is this has been awesome. How can people follow you online if you, in fact, wish to be followed? Um, 
You can, yeah, I do wish to be followed, I suppose. Uh, I always like to give you the choice. (laughs) (laughs) You can find me on Twitter and Instagram with the handle Zach B.E. Thompson. Z-A-C-B-E-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N. All right, Zach, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week's show. Uh, As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, the ability to promote your work on our site, and a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. And a $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail from my collection. And uh, if we hit $10 in monthly donations, we will start a new project, most likely a deep dive retrospective on James Robinson and Tony Harris's Starman. Uh, big thanks to our patrons, Steve Morris from Shelf Dust, Charlie Davis from the Young Ones Podcast, Robert Secundus from Docs Talks at XavierFiles.com, Scott Madrinsky from Mojo'sWork.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's upcoming Spider-Woman series, Seren, and Rick Cook Jr. You can follow WMQComics.com on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you the best of WMQ every week in your inbox. Finally, and most importantly, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views. And we'll see you next time. WMQA!